Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine. Broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, joined by my co-host, David. Blackman. We have a great show lined up for you. We will be joined by Michael Schellenberger, a great author of Apocalypse Never. This show is going to be joined by another co-host, Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy, and we're going to discuss Apocalypse Never, his book from Michael Schellenberger, as well as a environmentalist, if you will, who is talking truth about his feelings on the environment and also these rolling blackouts that we're hearing about coming out of California. But before we adjoin them to our show, I'd like to talk to you about our state of energy in Corpus Christi that is set for September 22nd. It is a luncheon. I've been talking to you guys for months about this wonderful luncheon and what you will learn. Now it pains me to have to tell you that we are sold out of coming to the event in person. However, we are offering virtual abilities to come and join the show and learn about what's happening at the port of Corpus Christi State of Energy. Mike Howard is the keynote speaker. We will be joined by a spokesperson from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to talk about OPEC. And we'll also be joined by Brooke Simmons, who is the president of Oklahoma Petroleum Uh, Basin Association talking about policies that are occurring at a D.C. level, Washington, D.C., that is. So it's definitely an event worth attending. If you'd like more information to attend virtually now, please go to shalemag.com, click on the banner ad, and be sure to get your virtual ticket. Now it's time for me to welcome on my co-host, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. It is. You know, we're starting to see a little bit of the change in in the season, and it's so nice and refreshing to feel it a little cooler. I mean, I I miss the sun a little bit, but it's okay. We know he'll return soon. So uh, a little bit of clouds is okay, right, Barry? And a little bit of rain is okay. Great. Let's jump into the hot seat, if you will, with the president uh, and the campaign. President Trump extended an offshore drilling moratorium in Florida, South Carolina and Georgia on Tuesday. My question, David, is why did he make this move? Well, you know, and you're right. It is kind of the political hot seat right now. We're in the middle of a presidential election. And boy, Uh, it's heating up. I mean, it's getting crazy. (laughs) So, you know, these drilling off the Atlantic coast and in the eastern Gulf of Mexico has been a political football for 30 years now since uh, George Bush the first implemented his first moratorium back in 1990. And uh, the Republican governors in these three states, uh, even though they say they're in favor of oil and gas drilling in general, don't want it off their coasts. You know, it's, it's classic not-in-my-backyard syndrome practiced by Republican governors. And uh, so they have put a lot of pressure on the Trump administration to extend this moratorium and he you know he needs to win all three of these states in order to win the election in November and uh, to do that he needs the the help from these governors and so it's a strictly political calculation as as this question has always been for 30 years 
strictly a political question. And uh, so it's no real surprise, I think, that uh, he decided to say he would extend these moratoriums. And, um, you know, uh, quite honestly, with all the wonderful prospects for shale drilling in the United States and all these gigantic shale plays across the country, we really, that's uh, there's okay. very little. Re- yeah, I mean, we don't need that resource right now anyway as a that's country. So that makes perfect sense. I was going to ask you that. I'm like, well, do we really need it? I mean, I guess we can afford to set it aside because we have an abundance right now. So that's the last thing right we now, need. Yeah. But then also, you know, when you say don't drill in my backyard, what are the unintended consequences, if you will, if we take a state like California that has been on our show quite a bit of these rolling blackouts and the purpose is because they've invested 100% right. in renewables. So they're not wanting to drill anywhere in their area. Um, they're they, they don't want pipelines. They don't want um, offshore. They don't want onshore. Is this something that we're looking at of, of something that they kind of create themselves? You know, bless their little hearts. Sure. Okay. Well, bless their little hearts. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. And everybody told them when they were implementing their policies over in California over the last 30 years, experts from, from all uh, universities and the industries involved told them, warned them that this would be the ultimate outcome, that you would not have adequate power supply to, you know, to provide reliable electricity to your population. And uh, so here we are. It's, it's not like it should be any surprise to anyone, and yet everybody acts surprised when it happens. Well, you know, David, it's strange that uh, we have this discussion, and yet the gentleman that we're interviewing here shortly, Michael Schellenberger, lives in California and will be discussing a lot of those consequences. So. Uh, yeah. You don't want to yeah. miss that. Stay tuned. But let's switch gears and talk about Enterprise Products. They announced this week that they're canceling plans to build a 450-barrel-per-day oil pipeline that was going to come from Permian Basin to Houston. Well, does that surprise you? No, not really. Uh, you know, given the downturn in the industry right? and, uh, you know, the other situation that we have right now, is that, you know, three years ago we had this incredible shortage of pipeline capacity mm-hmm. to bring both oil and natural gas out of the Permian Basin. Well, we've had this gigantic build-out of all these new pipelines, and now all of a sudden we have a big surplus of pipeline capacity. Right. I mean, we already have a surplus that's nearly a million barrels a day. So, you know, there was really no market need for another 450,000 barrels a day of takeaway capacity out of the Permian right now, and, and uh, you know, I'm sure management at Enterprise made that calculation and realized that by adding another giant pipeline, uh, you know, they what the ultimate impact would be is they would uh, have a, a real depression in the rates they could charge to, to move the crude oil. So, right. you know, it just really impacts, you know, all of those, cal- that kind of calculation, I mean, all of that really is, is things that impact the viability of a project like that mm-hmm. you know if, if it's not going to be profitable in the near term which this one probably would not have been then there's no reason to build it and and so it's hard to blame them for for you know going ahead and canceling this project at least for now now if you should have a big increase in production in the permian in the coming years they may reconsider and decide to go ahead and build the pipeline 
Um, but right now, it's just not necessary, and, and so it's well not really surprising that they canceled it. Well, and these pipelines, before they even construct them, they already have all of their partners and all of their leases in place before they even start it. So it's kind of, I'm 100% sure I'm going to be profitable because I have all my leases and all my contracts signed. Now it's time for me to build that pipeline. <laughs> That's a great business if you can get it. Let's talk about oil prices again. It's always on our radar. We had a pretty big drop in prices this week after three months of steady gains. Are we looking at another big bust? I, I really don't think so. Uh, you know, I mean, we just had part, a big part of this is we just finished the summer driving season, right? Mm-hmm. That always ends at Labor Day. And, uh, and, and now we're anticipating lower demand in the United States because everybody's going back to school and vacations are over and so the summer driving season really drives a lot of demand for gasoline in the United States. So I think really we probably should have anticipated, you know, a bit of a drop. This has been pretty significant. It's it's almost a 15% drop in, in the price of crude this week. And, uh, you know, it could go even a little lower than this. But, but we're not going to see it go down $10, $12 barrel, something like that, just, you know, the mid-30s, and then it'll probably – start rebounding again because global demand is continuing to rise despite all of the fight reports we're seeing in the media right now and uh, I, I think fundamentally unless the OPEC plus deal falls apart we're still in a situation that that supports $40 West Texas intermediate prices well you so know I think we can expect it to rebound up to that level that's great news because you know there's two things one our state of energy which hopefully everyone has already purchased their tickets because the registration is closed now uh we will have a spokesperson from uh saudi arabia the kingdom talking specifically on this topic uh, but there are still virtual tickets available so if anyone wants to get a ticket they can go to shellmag.com state of energy but fitch ratings we had an energy minute this past week fitch ratings had actually kind of lowered their expectation to get everybody prepared where you know what what you're saying is falling in line with it, correct? Well, uh, yeah, and they, that's one of the big rating services that, uh, you know, projects prices out into the future, and they they lowered their projection for West Texas Intermediate for 2021 from $50 to $46, and their projection for Brent crude, the international price, from 54 to 50 Honestly, I think that's a little low, but again, you know, when, when we say this, you know, it's all dependent on that OPEC Plus deal paying together and those countries continuing to be willing to artificially reduce their own production levels uh, in order to prop the price up because fundamentally the market is definitely oversupplied. We have uh, the OPEC countries alone have seven, six to seven million dollars in spare production capacity that they are now, uh, not dollars, uh, six to seven million barrels a day of spare production capacity that they're keeping on the sidelines right now. Mm. And, you know, it's very dangerous for companies, shale companies and, and other companies in the United States to build their business models based on that agreement holding together. Right. Because it can fall apart at any moment like we saw in Ma- March of this year. Right. So, But anyway, right now, at least with that agreement in place, fundamentally, you know, the market's there to support 40 to $45 West Texas intermediate prices. Right. Well, you know, it'll be interesting to see what Fahad, who we've had him on the, the show before, Fahad Nassar, uh, tells yes. us that's coming out of uh, Saudi Arabia, the Kingdom, and of course OPEC. 
for now, David, that's all the time we have for our segment. But our listeners, stay tuned. We will be joined in our next segment with Michael Schellenberger. He's the author of a wonderful book, Selling Like Hotcakes, Apocalypse Never. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Hi folks, Alvin Bailey here. Did you know Agreco is proud to sponsor In the Oil Patch Radio Show? Agreco has served Texas oil fields for over 10 years, supporting producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. They service everything from pump jacks with a single 200 kilowatt unit to massive gas processing facilities requiring 50 megawatts or more. Agreco is your dedicated engineering partner for diesel and natural gas generators, as well as battery power solutions. Call Agreco today at 1-800-AGRECO. That's 1-800-A-G-G-R-E-K-O. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bilotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. Our guest today is Michael Schellenberger, who is well-known for being an environmentalist for over 30 years and uh, has wrote a book, Apocalypse Never. But before I bring him on, I'd like to introduce that I have my co-host in studio, Mike Howard, today, CEO of Howard Energy. Mike, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for having me. And also, David Blackman, who is the editor of Shell Magazine. David, welcome to the show. You're joining us via Zoom. I am. I am. Hope I look pretty. You do. Well, so we do have a lot of things to cover, and I'm trying to stay on topic, so please uh, bear with me as I uh, go through my notes. I think why I wanted to have Michael on was because we seem to have hit a place where we are talking so much about climate change. It's getting so scary that uh, some of the topics I hope we can cover with Michael is, you know, are we scaring our kids to death? the current rolling blackouts in California that are happening, and then also talking about this election cycle coming up and, of course, climate change and, uh, you know, fracking, if they're going to ban it, has also been on the discussion. And so as we prepare for November the 3rd, I wanted to get into those different conversations. So, guys, let's go ahead and bring on Mike Schellenberger. Mike, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thanks for having me, guys. So just to give our listeners a pretty decent intro without taking too much time, because you have a lot that you have uh, managed to do, I just wanted to cover a few things. First of all, you are Time Magazine gave you Hero of the Environment Award. You also have gotten Green Book Award winner. You also are the founder and president of Environmental Progress. Your current book out now, which is receiving five-star reviews, is Apocalypse Never which is an extremely important book because it covers a lot of environmental stuff, as well as you've been known for environmental guru, climate change uh, guru, North American's leading public intellectual on clean energy, high priest, and your TED Talks have been reviewed more than 5 million times. You've also advised policymakers from around the world. You also have been a climate and environmentalist for over 30 years, and you recently were invited 
by the Governmental Panel on Climate Change for 2019 to serve as an independent expert reviewer of its next assessment report that will be due and published in 2020. And as a leading environmental journalist, you have also had articles in Forbes, New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and of course, your TED Talks um, have been seen by more than 6 million people. Um, have I left anything out? I'm sure I have, but we have a limited time to introduce you. I think that's fine for now. Um, and so uh, with, with that, I wanted to uh, kind of just ask you some of your reviews on your book. I, I listened to it last night. They're all five stars. Most of them are really geared at thanking you for really addressing one of the most controversial topics of our time, which is climate change. One of them was titled The Environmentalist with Integrity. And so I wanted to start off with just asking you your opinion on, you've been in this for over 30 years and you kind of changed your stance on your view of uh, the environment. And with that being said, you created this book. Why did you title the book what you titled it? Apocalypse Never. Yeah, so I mean, I wrote Apocalypse Never for my, I mean, I dedicated the book to my kids. And in their, between the either one of them is 14 and one of them is 21, I was working on a book about nuclear energy, actually. And, and then last year, when people started to make claims like billions of people will die from climate change or we have 10 years to act, I just felt like the conversation had gotten just really crazy and spiraled out of control and that somebody needed to first and foremost, just kind of separate the science from the science fiction. And so that's what I do on climate change, endangered species, plastic waste, meat consumption, deforestation, basically every major environmental issue. I just go through it and I describe what's what's real, what's not real. And then I also describe how humans save nature and talk about the importance of things like substitution, which is just you know the replacement of coal with natural gas, for example, or the replacement of switching from wood to LPG or to uh, nuclear, and that these acts of substitution are really the main event when it comes to saving the natural environment. Um, the other part of it is, of course, using less land to for food production in particular. And then the third part of the book is asking the question why if environmental problems are manageable you know there we have real environmental problems um some are very serious uh, but they're not the end of the world this is not the book of revelations this is not the apocalypse this is you know in terms of climate it's the planet getting a couple degrees maybe three degrees warmer over pre-industrial levels certainly things to worry about but it's not you know there's not really any scenario for us to see a return towards the kind of poverty that we escaped with fossil fuels. So that's what I wanted to address. And, um, you know, the title just felt like it needed to kind of uh, say exactly what I was saying. And so those felt like the two words that really got at it. The subtitle, as you might have mentioned, was why environmental alarmism hurts us all. And I just wanted to describe why it's a problem, this chronic exaggeration of environmental problems. I mean, it was shocking to me was how many environmental journalists who I criticize, I mean, they're really part of the problem. Right. Most environmental journalists are activists. They are they mm -hmm. go into environmental journalism because they're environmental activists. So they exaggerate like activists do. 
But I was surprised by how many of them were like, hey, come on, Michael, isn't it okay to exaggerate a little bit in service of the cause? That's kind of the basic idea for a lot of journalists. Well, you know what, though? And I compare it to... No, sorry, go ahead. If you are doing that and it's causing children to commit suicide, that's a, there's a problem with you, too. So I'm glad that you uh, decided to take this topic on because that's exactly what's happening in many different areas of the United States, and children are very much alarmed. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get back on this topic and talk a little bit more, really dig into your book. You're listening to an Oil Patch Radio Show. Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation, ratings online, website, advertising and social media and search engine optimization all of these areas really affect how google ranks your entire listing so if ranking on page one is your goal pick up the phone and call us now 210-240-7188 or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile we'll be in contact with you within 24 hours once again pick up the phone and call us now 210-240-7188 or simply go to shalemag.com that's s-h-a-l-e-m-a-g.com slash business profile start dealing with a company you can trust and always find And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Michael Schellenberger, author of his new book, Apocalypse Never. Michael, before the break, we were talking about how come you wrote the book, the title of the book. And I just, you know, wanted to thank you for writing the book and taking on this topic because I think it's a, it's a very complicated subject and something that is causing our children great anxiety. And as a mom and as a grandmother, we need to start talking about this topic, but in ways that are more healthier for their mental state. And I'm glad you dedicated your book to your children and that you're taking this topic on. If it's okay with you, I wanted to bring on my co-host, Mike, who is CEO of Howard Energy, because he has a lot of questions. We've all examined your book read your book, enjoy your book, but let's switch gears just a little bit. Mike, go ahead. Hi, Michael. Um, you know, read your book on the recommendation of one of my favorite anti-poverty, uh, I'm going to call him an activist, but he's a CEO of an energy company, Chris Wright. Uh, and and I, I really enjoy Chris's talks um, and I appreciate him, his recommendation. I'm going to recommend everybody listening uh, to buy the book. So in our industry, we hear a lot about, especially as a CEO in this industry, about a net zero goal that a lot of companies have by 2050 or sooner. And it makes us feel like our industry is going out of business. So my question, first question to you is from your perspective, you're not in the industry, you're outside the industry looking in. What is the future of oil and natural gas uh, to, to the world's energy future? Well, it's a very interesting question, and I address it in, at length throughout the book. I mean, one of the themes in the book is energy transitions, which is just the simple substitutions that I'm talking about. I even talk about the history of the study of energy transitions. So really among energy experts, energy scholars, historians of energy, this switch from renewables, wood and dung and water wheels and windmills to fossil fuels 
is just the big event of the last 250 years. I mean, this is industrialization, it's modernization, it's going from being small farmers on the brink of starvation to being the rich, jet-setting people that we are. Um, and if you think that's bad, that, that industrialization is bad, then you're against fossil fuels. Um, if you recognize that your own prosperity is something that we should be grateful for, <laughs> And that we don't, you know, that one out of three of our children don't die before the age of five is something we should celebrate. Right. Or that deaths from natural disasters has, has declined over 90% over the last 100 years. If you think all that's good, then you should want a high energy society. We know that the Industrial Revolution wasn't possible with renewables. It required coal in England and, and fossil fuels around the world. It also, hyd big hydroelectric dams helped too. So then the question is, how fast do these energy transitions occur and what is their character? Well, the character is clear. It's a move from low power density sources to high power density sources. Power density is just how much power you're producing per hectare acre of land. So it's just a simple environmental measure of your energy. So it's not just that there's a twice as much energy in a lump of coal as a lump of wood. It's also that a coal mine produces hundreds, maybe thousands of times more uh, energy or power in the form of heat or electricity than does a forest. And so that's why we can only have wealth, this kind of modern wealth that we enjoy thanks to fossil fuels. There's also a transition inside fossil fuels. First, it was from coal to petroleum led, of course, by, famously by Churchill and the transition to petroleum-powered ships, but then also with trains. I mean, it's interesting that in the United States, we had wood-powered trains until we until we deforested so much that it was more That's efficient right. to go to coal, whereas in Europe, they had transitioned earlier. And then, of course, we transitioned, um, so we have we transitioned eventually to electricity for trains, and um, but we're still stuck with pretty heavy oil for the ships. So then the question is, all right, what comes after petroleum and natural gas? I mean, natural gas, sorry, of course, substitutes for coal. That's what's happening in the United States. It's what's been happening around the world. It's why emissions are going down. We're clearly, for my view, I, I mean, I think most experts think that the gas age is going to last a really long time. I mean, really the whole century, for sure. No question about it. And then you get to petroleum. We can talk about that. But you get to petroleum, and there's a lot of hype about electric cars, but they don't they don't seem to me to be obvious substitutes for petroleum. Um, there's certainly a very large group of scholars and the entire Japanese government, which is a very engineer and science-oriented government, that thinks it's going to be hydrogen that ends up replacing petroleum. But either way, that's a long ways away. I mean, the fact that, like, the coronavirus, you know, depression has destroyed many oil and gas companies, or the fact that the world is so awash in oil and gas that it's de that it's resulted in in the bankruptcies and the consolidations that you've seen in the industry. That's just that doesn't have anything to do with energy transitions. I mean, in some ways, what it does is it just it just shows how difficult it will be to replace petroleum and natural gas because of their high power densities. In the case of petroleum. And then, of course, because their environmental benefits in the case of natural gas. So for me, I just kind of go, we're clearly in for another century at least of gas and petroleum, probably that much. Um, it's not, there's not going to be, they're not going to regulate their way out of from petroleum to electric cars or something. When we return, I want to get back on that topic. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back.
And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Michael Schellenberger, who is the author of Apocalypse Never, fast-selling book that's out right now. You can get it at Amazon. Michael, before the break, you were talking about that we are not going to get off of uh, fossil fuels, at least for a century. Can we get back on that topic? I'd like for you to finish your thoughts on the chapter that you have on the energy transition. Sure. So, I mean, I think if you're looking at energy, you know, so you look at past energy transitions to think about future energy transitions. And so the tr- the first thing is that the trend is clearly towards more energy-dense fuels. So that's why I don't think we are ever going to transition back towards energy-dilute fuels, namely renewables. Solar and wind farms required three to four to hundred times more land than a natural gas plant or a nuclear plant, and that means there's huge costs, and that doesn't even deal with the unreliability. So I think that we should and will eventually transition from fossil fuels to nuclear, not to renewables, and that that transition will look similar to the transitions from coal to petroleum, coal to natural gas, wood to coal, and those transitions all took hundreds of years. I mean, we're in a fast transition right now from coal to natural gas. Anybody that studies energy statistics over 100-year, 200-year timeframes knows that the speed at which coal has been replaced by natural gas in the United States is really fast. Um, fast. So we're clearly, it's, it's not like these transitions occur in some smooth way. They're lumpy and disruptive, just like all technological changes. So, yeah, I mean, we're transitioning from uh, coal to natural gas. Um, That's going to take decades. There's still some countries for whom it may be cheaper still to do coal, but for the most part, it looks like countries are going to be able to do a lot of natural gas, which is great news from an environmental point of view. And then the issue of petroleum. So to understand the the past energy transitions from coal to petroleum or uh, even wood to coal, that these are energy transitions where the end use technology, which is the car, the automobile in the case of petroleum, or it was the oil powered ships and trains, that those are driving much of those transitions. And so, you know, you kind of go, is the Tesla electric car a model for future vehicles? I don't think so. It's material, it's rematerialized the car. The car is much heavier than, than existing uh, petroleum-fueled cars. And then there's uh, there's the range problems, which we've never solved. Um, so, I mean, it seems to me that if it were to be electric cars, and I'm not I'm not saying it couldn't be or that there's no scenario in which it could be because it, there's, you know, I could be wrong. But if we do transition to electric cars, it would, I think you'd have to see some disruptive end use of those electric vehicles that I don't think would follow the traditional car model. In other words, I don't think we're going to have we're going to everybody's car is going to be like a Tesla electric car because of the high cost and the range problems and the bulkiness and the material intensity of it. Mm-hmm. But if you had like a fleet of electric cars that operated, you know, like Uber, like, you know, but driverless sure. Uber kind of cars, I could potentially see it. But we're not really seeing that even happening. So, well, yeah. so I that, just think, you know, anyway, go ahead. So, so that, that begs the question then. Uh, does solar and wind have a place in the energy transition? Is there a place that it does work? Well, it works. It works in my my wife's garden and <laughs> in the backyard. I mean, I'm not like against solar and wind. If you want to buy solar panels, um, but I just don't. I don't know why we would be killing 
endangered species, including our Joshua tree and desert tortoises in California for environmental reasons. That doesn't make any sense. Sure. It makes sense as a religious ritual, which is basically what it is. Yeah. Um, these large solar and wind farms. And I also think it's worked for the natural gas industry as a kind of greenwashing. You know, they've been using solar and wind as a way to basically shut down nuclear and to some extent coal plants in the name of the environment because people think renewables are good for the environment. And the reason they think they're good for the environment is just because they think they're more natural, which is just silly. You know, people just think solar, people think sunlight is more natural than uranium, which is just dumb. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a, I think it's a fad. It's also a religion. I think it's the dominant religion of the elite. You know, both the, you know, the, so I think there's both a financial, my book talks about the motivations are power, money, and religion. And people are like, do you really, you know, someone's asked me, they kind of go, are they people pretending, you know, is like the, you know, is like the secretary general of the United Nations, is he pretending to, no, it's this religion. It's, it's like saying, it would be like asking, did the conquistadors from Spain who went to Mexico and Peru and other countries, were they pretending to be Catholic? No, but that didn't stop them from like, you know, trying to make money or trying to find gold. <laughs> yeah. And that's basically what's happening on renewables. Go ahead. So it, this is a, a, gonna be a, a short answer here, but I'm familiar with a lot of the, your work around uh, nuclear energy, which I found just fascinating uh, and all the work around that. One of the things that you say in the book is the energy that I would use in my lifetime uh, could be produced from uranium that could fit inside of a Coke can. Uh, we have a very, it'd be a short answer before we can come back and maybe complete it. But how do you calculate that? What's going on there? Well, the difference between, uh, yeah, so just a Coke can of uranium can provide all the energy I need for my entire life, including all of my energy intensive jet fuel. And that's just explained by energy density, the much higher levels of energy density in that lump of uranium than in a lump of coal. Although, just to say it more accurately, you're burning the coal, so you're splitting the molecules in the coal, but in the uranium, you're splitting the atoms, and so you're just releasing gigantically larger quantities, million times more heat um, by breaking those atomic bonds than you are by breaking those molecular bonds. Well, Mike, with that, let's take a break. I want to come back to your book, but I did want to also tell you, and your chapter of uh, destroying the environment to clean the earth was a very interesting chapter to me. And I do encourage your listeners to get your book because in that one, you go into great detail on the problem that the wind farms are facing with extinction of many birds, including bats, which are vital to us, birds, and of course, uh, bald eagles. So it's a very, very interesting chapter as well uh, in which you go into the details. And it, they're all over Texas, so I do encourage people to read the book because it'll help them understand a little bit more about what's really something, what we should be thinking about when we're looking at pushing a lot more wind farms out. I'm not knocking them, I'm just saying we should be considering all things, and one of them is uh, the threat to our wildlife. You're listening to In the Wolf Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Remember this name, Oilfield Experts, to locate any part, any time for your automotive or oilfield equipment needs. Oilfield Experts' specialty is those hard-to-find oilfield parts for your fleet maintenance needs, and we've been providing those parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us for the right part right now. 
Write down this number, Oil Field Experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210-471-1923. And visit us on the web at theoilfieldexperts.com. Farmers and ranchers are the hardest working people on earth and deserve a side-by-side vehicle that works just as hard. That's why Yamaha makes the Viking an all-new Viking 6, the world's first true three- and six-person UTVs assembled in America. Ranked number one in drivetrain durability, Viking outworks and outclasses the competition in features, comfort, and off-road capability. For more, visit YamahaViking.com. Most dependable claim based on a 2013 Yamaha Source side-by-side owner study. Welcome back to In the All Patch Radio Show. I'm David Blackman, my co-host Kim Bellotto, and co-host Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy, with our special guest, Mike Schellenberger, a brilliant uh, environmental energy author of several books and uh, writer all over the American news media. Michael, um, coming back into this final segment, I wanted to talk to you about a couple of current events. We, we've had major hurricane hit the Texas coast again uh, in August. Hurricane Laura, it's the third major hurricane in four years that has hit the Port Arthur, Beaumont area. And I was so glad to hear you talking about the religion of climate change. I've been writing that for 25 years myself. Um, One of the, the bits of dogma of that religion is that climate change is causing the frequency and intensity of major hurricanes uh, in the Atlantic and Pacific basins to intensify. And I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. I know you've addressed it in your writing and uh, is that really something that's happening as a part of climate change? Right, so this is, I think, just one of the most um, deceitful efforts around climate change. It's been going on for at least 31 years, 32 years. So 1988, you know, they manipulated the air conditioning systems in Washington, D.C.'s in Congress. Two senators did to make the hearing room hotter. So obviously we're, you know, as biological creatures, we're oriented towards the weather. And so the weather is always news, right? And it's always been news and it will always be news. And so climate activists have basically tried to point to the weather as evidence of climate change or as evidence that things are getting worse I mean, this is the thing I keep stressing. If all you need to know about climate change, there's only two two things you need to know. The most important two things are deaths from natural disasters have been going down and they've been gone down 90%. And there's no scenario for that. I'm about to write something that says there's no scenario for that trend to reverse itself. There's no scientific scenario. There's science fiction, but there's no <laughs> reason to think that we're going to see an increase in deaths from natural disasters or disease, infectious disease, COVID obviously being you know, uh, a once in a century event, but deaths from an infectious disease have been going down. So they leave that out. And I was testifying in front of Congress a couple of weeks ago, and I explained to the members of the, the hearing, I said, look, I don't know if you all understand, but when people talk about climate change increasing deaths from natural disasters or disease, they're saying against all else being equal. In other words, against some scenario where there was no change in temperature. Well, yeah, but all else is not equal. And the change in temperature is a consequence of energy consumption, which has 
which has driven down the deaths from natural disasters and right. has reduced the dis deaths from disease. So you can't have it that way. You have to understand that what they're talking about is against a hypothetical. I mean, if it were up to me, sure. You know, if all else, I don't, we would rather not have any change in the temperature, but that's because we've constructed a whole civilization around this temperature, but that's not an option. And first of all, it's not even clear it was an option without humans causing climate change. Um, you know, it might've gotten a lot colder. So, you know, I think it's been very manipulative. You know, I, I think conservatives and Republicans are, have done it too, though I think in some ways it's been more of a reaction, you know, like the, like the pointing right. to snow and winter. Virtue signaling, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, conservatives kind of respond by saying it's winter, so there's no climate change. I mean, that's just as kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so I just think both sides have done it, but, um, yeah, I mean, look, I think you can find, we can find um, more heat waves, longer fire season in California. You can find some, in, some the scientists say they can find, and I have no reason to doubt them, some faster wind speeds and some hurricanes. But, but in terms of the impacts, in terms of the things that you care about, which is deaths, first and foremost, but also costs, um, things have been getting better, not worse. And so yeah. I, I just think that that removing that context from people is really at the heart of the of the scare campaign. Well, you mentioned California, and that, that brings me to my next question. In August, we have these weeks on end, frankly, of rolling blackouts in California. Many in the news media, many policymakers in California attempted to blame all of that on the, the, the wildfires that California has every year. But really, is that really what caused the reason was behind those blackouts? Wasn't the real reason that it all started different than, than the fires themselves? Right. So there's two there's two sets of blackouts. I mean, the first was the blackouts last fall, which were forced because forced because we had not spent the money that we should have spent on keeping the vegetation from right. touching the electrical wires. Um, we spent that money on renewables instead. We spent it on renewables, and then we saw our electricity prices go up six times more than they went up in the rest of the United States over the last decade. Yeah. So that's that. And then, and then lo and behold, um, unreliable electricity makes electricity unreliable. Who would have thought of it? <laughs> Who would have thought of it? And so in California, we almost had blackouts, very, very out of control, what they call cascading failures. Um, which is just what it sounds like. And that was because there's a, the religion, this is, it shows the degree to which the religion has taken hold among the ruling class in California. The ruling elites persuaded themselves that they didn't need, oh, all this nuclear power plants or natural gas plants, that they could run the state on solar panels and batteries. Well, that that was spectacularly disproven. And so what we saw for the first time was the governor acknowledge that reliability is a problem with renewables, which sounds like ridiculous, but that's progress out here that you would even that acknowledge is, so. that there's problems right. with, with reliability. So I think renewables are actually headed for a pretty serious crisis. I think there's a lot of opt or a lot of feigned optimism in that community around the election of Biden around subsidies, but you got to remember that like renewables have ground to a halt. Wind has basically ground to a halt in Germany, not because they don't have the subsidies, but because the citizen activism and the environmental activism has blocked uh, the construction of transmission lines and new wind farms. 
Right. So, and that's happening in the United States as well. I mean, there's a very powerful movement in Nebraska to stop this big transmission line from going in, led by Native Americans and homeowners and environmentalists. And that really puts a, so I just think that the land use and the unreliability, the high land use and unreliability renewables means that their days are numbered. Well, Michael, thank you for coming in and talking to us a little bit about your book. I do want to give you an opportunity to tell us where to get your book. I, I got your book off of Amazon, but I want you to close with uh, where can our listeners grab your book? Because this is just touching the tip of all of the information that's in your books, whether you want to know about when, what's happening in California, nuclear. And if you really want to get informed on the topic of energy, your book is one of the best books. So where can our listeners go and uh, grab a copy? Well, I'm happy to say the book is back in stock. It was out of stock at Amazon for a few, several weeks. We're actually in our sixth printing. It's a bestseller in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, so Amazon's great. Your local bookstore is great. Thank you. And, you know, people can follow me, follow me on Twitter, Schellenberger MD, and also on Facebook. So, yeah, I'd love to stay in touch and love to come back on the show um, and we can keep the conversation going. You got it. Again, thank you for writing such a wonderful and insightful book. Everybody go Google on Amazon, Apocalypse Never. Thank you, Michael, once again for joining in the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you, Michael. Great. Thanks, guys. Nice to meet you. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.